We had some audio issues at the beginning of the sermon today, but hang in there. It gets a lot better about five minutes in. This morning's scripture is John 12, 36 through 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Morning. The end of the previous section, section we covered last week in John's Gospel, John wrote a warning issued by Jesus. He wrote all the warning issued by Jesus to the crowds of Jews that had gathered around him in Jerusalem. He said to them, the light is among you for just a little while longer. In other words, the warning was that the light was about to leave, at least in that particular form. His main point was that while he was on earth, while Jesus was on earth, it was a blessing to mankind by revealing power and nature, will of God. The warning was that the blessing, him, was about to be taken away from them so that they should believe in him now. Believe in him now. Given the confusion, though, the unbelief, and even the murderous intent of some present, it should not be surprising that immediately afterward, our passage opens for this morning, he departed. Jesus departed and hid himself from them. In other words, in light of the warning that he issued and the response to it, this makes sense. For although his time was at hand, today was not yet the day. At that point, Grace, I want you to feel this, and I, I want you to, we're going to test a little bit. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus to take him at his word. This is a tricky passage in some ways. But at that point, John anticipated that his readers would be left scratching their heads yet again. The burning and familiar question, as verse 37 makes very clear, is how unbelief could remain. This is such an important question for John throughout this gospel. How is it that Jesus could teach with the authority with which he taught, perform the kind of miraculous signs, marvelous works that he performs, be who he was, and have so many continue in their unbelief and its varying presentations. How could, Grace, this is what John feels deeply, which is why he gives us this passage, how could the eternal Son of God, the King of glory, the second person of the Godhead, stand in the midst of men and women created by him at that moment, being sustained and held together by him, and have them respond in confusion and doubt, unbelief and anger, rather than surrender and worship. How's that possible? The main point of our passage for this morning 
big idea of John 12, 36 to 43 is that God is sovereign even over the unbelief, the lost. As a result of that, three main takeaways, which actually shows up as four main takeaways at the end. Two are combined. The three main takeaways are that we would learn the fear of the Lord. Second, that we would learn the righteousness, the rightness of God's judgment. Third, that we would place our hope entirely in the mercy of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Rightly read, rightly understood, in light of the whole of the story of redemption. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, to take him at his word, even in hard passages like this. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to understand carefully and clearly what John meant as he quoted Isaiah and brought it into the present. I pray that we'd understand very carefully and clearly what John meant. And I pray that we would understand that largely by not responding immediately, philosophically or emotionally, but that we would let the text say what it says and conform our philosophies and our emotions to it with your help. I pray that we would see that although this is a hard word, it it flows from a harder truth still, namely that we are lost in sin. I pray that rather than focusing on that aspect of this, that we would see and be moved by and shaped by and driven forward from this place by the fact that this is in most ways an announcement of hope. It's a passage of hope, even though it's a hard passage. I pray that that's what we would leave with, a a greater sense of hope in your sovereign grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the question, why don't some people, even in this case, the eyewitnesses and recipients of the the miracles of Jesus, believe in Jesus? Why don't people believe in Jesus? John has addressed this question before, and I'm going to point that out to you in just a minute, pretty in a pretty significant way. He will address it again. We're in chapter 12. We've got a number of chapters left to go in this gospel. He's going to address this again. Get this grace. He began his gospel by declaring, among the very first words of his gospel, John writes, he was in the world. And the world was made through him, Jesus. Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Similarly, just a couple of chapters later, John recorded John the Baptist's words. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard in the presence of the Father eternally. Yet no one receives his testimony. Few chapters later still, John 6.36, Jesus said, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe in me. And in 1237, our passage, John wrote, Though he had done, Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Again, why? Why is that the case? No one can read John's gospel thoughtfully and not repeatedly wonder how this could possibly be in light of all that John records of Jesus and his person and his works. If Jesus was and is who he and his followers said he was, 
And if he did the things the Bible describes him as having done, how can anyone not believe in him? To this point, as I just said, John has answered this question a number of different times. 14, I counted, previous to this chapter, or this, this section of chapter 12. While we've considered them all individually as we've made our way through John's gospel, I'm going to give them all to you right now. 14 in a row. Yeah. And, and the reason for this is it helps us to feel the weight of the answer he's going to give in this passage this morning. Just listen to these and listen for the common thread that is woven through all of these. They're all just a sentence. It's quick. But listen to these and listen for the thread that weaves its way through all 14 of them. Only those born of the will of God, we're told in chapter 1, verse 13, can see Jesus for who he is. Only those born of the will of God. Second, more than once, John pointed out that it was only after Jesus rose from the dead and the Spirit came upon them that certain aspects of his works and ministry were understood even by those who believed in him. Chapter 2. A little bit later in chapter 2, some did not believe, John wrote, because Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why don't some people believe? In this case, chapter 2, verse 24, because Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Number four, John recorded Jesus' proclamation that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He must be born of the flesh and of the spirit. Five, in chapter 3, verse 20, John helps us to see that some did not see Jesus because in their sin they preferred darkness. Couldn't see him because they chose to remain in the darkness. Number six, John recorded John the Baptist's answer in 327. A person cannot receive even one thing, one good thing, one spiritual thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. It's a big deal. Let me say that again. This is John the Baptist, chapter three, verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Number seven, 336. We're told that those who do not obey do so because they cannot see life because the wrath of God remains on them. Number eight, chapter four, verse 48, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, the work of God through me, you cannot or will not believe. Number nine, chapter five, verse 21, Jesus says, the son gives life to whom he will. Number 10. To the unbelieving crowds in chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who will believe? Who, who will receive the teaching and person of Jesus? All that are given to him by the Father. Number 11, in the clearest statement yet, I think, Jesus declared in chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And another what I think is a shockingly clear statement to this question. Why do some not believe? Jesus said to his disciples, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 13. People do not believe, Jesus said, because they are not of God in chapter 8. And lastly, 14. In 1026, Jesus told the Jews in Jerusalem that they did not believe in him. Why didn't people not believe in Jesus in spite of all that he said and did? because they were not among his sheep. Putting them all together like that, I hope at least two things are clear from that list. First, I hope it's clear that for John, the cause of the unbelief of those who saw and heard Jesus 
is important and consistent. The fact that 14 times in 11 and a half chapters, he had, why people do not believe in Jesus in light of the things John wrote about Jesus. Remember, the whole point of this is that you would believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, that you might have life. That's the whole point of his gospel. And so explaining why some do not is a big deal for him. And within that, his explanation remains mostly the same throughout the entire gospel. He says it in different ways. But he's saying basically the same thing. And the second thing, then, I hope you see from this list, or that this list makes clear, is that God is sovereign over the unbelief of the world. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Take him at his word. I'll say more about that in connection to our passage for this morning in just a minute. But but you do not understand this list, and therefore you will not understand this passage for this morning. If you do not see the singular thread of the sovereignty of God woven through all of them. Go to the website later today when this gets put up and look these passages up yourself. We talk a good deal about God's sovereignty over our belief at Grace Church, but these passages, especially collectively, help us to see that God is also sovereign over our unbelief. With that, in our passage This morning, John gives another entirely consistent piece to the answer of why people do not see Jesus for who he is and therefore do not believe in him for what he taught. Before we get there, let's just pause quickly just for a minute and recognize that in discussing these things, in considering these passages in this text, we're talking about real people with real unbelief and perhaps some here today. We can't possibly read this as God intends if we don't have our ourselves in mind before coming to faith in Jesus or our kids or our neighbors or our friends or our family who do not yet believe. This, this is not merely some conceptual idea. This is not merely a doctrinal issue. It is an exceedingly personal issue as well. May God tune our minds to his word. Let us under, may by his grace we understand what He means carefully and clearly. But also, may God tune our hearts. May he soften our hearts toward his image bearers as we consider Jesus' answer to why people do not believe in Jesus. This has real implications. It really does describe the real people in our lives, including all of us at one point. And so with with that, consider with me John's two answers to why people did not believe from this passage. Pulling yet again on the same thread we just traced through the first 11 and a half chapters of this gospel, John explained the disbelief of the crowds in two related but distinct ways in this passage, both by quoting separate prophecies from Isaiah. The first way he described it in verses 37 and 38, he quoted Isaiah 53.1. So read Isaiah 53.1 in just a second. But Isaiah 53.1 comes after, this is advanced Bible study, Isaiah 52, right? Chapter 53 comes right after 52. And at the end of 52, 52 verse 13, we find the basis of 53.1. So 52.13, we find a remarkable promise of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. John 
has this in mind, this lifted up, this exalted language he's already relayed to us concerning Jesus. And so behold, my servant, this referring to Jesus in Isaiah 52, 13, and come back to the more familiar part in 53, in just a little bit, where we all love to quote Isaiah 53 in reference to Jesus. It's the same, same idea, same passage. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You think, well, the servant is going to be received in gratitude and gladness. He's going to be trusted in and it'll be the people exalting him just as he ought to be. Well, nevertheless, according to 53.1, the passage John quotes, most would respond in unbelief. Even though the servant would come and act wisely and be lifted up across, didn't quite realize that. Most would respond in unbelief. Even though God would send a wise and mighty servant to rescue his people, his people would not believe. The servant of the Lord, this is the part we know more, we're, we're more familiar with. The servant of the Lord would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's 53.3, just two verses later. Therefore, God laments, and this is our passage for this morning. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John knew that Jesus was the servant, and the present rejection of him was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That is the heart of what he wrote in verses 37 and 38. So a little bit of background from Isaiah. Listen again to 37 and 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, that is, although he acted wisely and was lifted up and exalted, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There were many witnesses, Grace, as you can see throughout John's gospel, to Jesus' wisdom, his lifting up and his exaltation, his person, his teaching, his miracles, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection, who did not believe in Jesus, who remained hardened in their hearts toward Jesus, who despised and rejected him, according to Isaiah's prophecy. What's more, however, John tells us that this was more than an observation he was making. It's not just that he was remembering Isaiah's prophecy and saying, hey, the things that are happening here now kind of are like that. They remind me of that passage. It's more than that. Instead, John explicitly claimed that the Jews didn't believe in Jesus so that, in order that, Isaiah's prophecy might be fulfilled in them. They didn't believe in order that God's promise would hold true. God was sovereign over their unbelief such that it was the means by which God would keep his word. It's pretty tricky, isn't it? If you really stop and think about that, that's pretty tricky. It it can be, at least on the surface, a tough pill to swallow. I mean to provide some help with that, but before I do, we, we need to see that John makes it trickier still first. Before we deal with the trickiness of the, this first Part, we need to see that it gets trickier still. And that leads to the second way that John explains the disbelief of the Jews in our passage. Verses 39 and 40. Not only was the unbelief of the Jews the intentional fulfillment of a promise of God, it was also part of the active work of God. Verses 39 and 40, quoting again from Isaiah, but this time chapter 6, drives out any remaining notion of 37 and 8 
describing some kind of passiveness of God in this on the part of the unbelief of the crowds. Look at 39. Therefore, you see what it says? They could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he is God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. The question, of course, is whether or not this means what it seems to me. <laughs> sure sounds like one thing. Is that, is that really what John wants us to get? It seems to teach that those who encountered Jesus did not believe, that those who encountered Jesus and did not believe, did not believe because they could not believe. More still, it seems to say that they could not believe because God blinded and hardened them to keep them from seeing and understanding and turning. Yeah, that's a tricky pill to swallow if that's what it's saying. And again, as I prayed earlier, most of the time when we come to hard passages like this, in my experience, the tendency is to respond to it philosophically or emotionally, but we have to begin textually. I tried to say this in my own way about five different times and I couldn't. So I'm just going to, I'm going to quote from one of the commentators I read this, this week. The Christian answer. So what do we say to this? How do we respond to this idea? How do we respond to the question of the cause of the unbelief of the crowds and what it seems like John is saying here? The Christian answer, as clearly articulated in Paul, he says, especially Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 11, as clearly articulated in Paul and here in John, is that the unbelief, this unbelief, was not only foreseen by Scripture, predicted and even promised, but on that very account necessitated by Scripture. Although the Greek conjunction, and this is a big deal, the, the, the Greek conjunction is hina, it's translated so that at the beginning of verse 38, sometimes, this is technical, but it's important, has the resultative force. All right, what would that mean? If it had the resultative force, I'm still quoting in the New Living Translation, I guess, but it, it has... The resultative force sometimes, and if that it had it here, again, this is what the commentator says, the meaning here would be that the unbelief of the people resulted in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, not that it occurred in order that the Old Testament prophecy might be fulfilled. So the Greek conjunction, hina, sometimes mean that. However, no such weakening can be legitimated here. Verse 39 insists that it was for this reason that the people could not believe. Those are direct and significant words. As the 14 verses we saw earlier indicate, along with several more we'll still see in John's Gospel, God is sovereign over the belief and unbelief of those who encounter the person and promises of Jesus, including today. This is heavy, of course. It's counterintuitive to many modern sensibilities. It even seems, in some ways, to be out of the character of God for many. This reason, in just a minute, I'm going to attempt to answer the question, what, what do we do with all this? What do we do with these things? But for now, and once again, let's take a minute, even now in your seat, to pray and ask God, is this what your word says? Let's help us to start with the text and not our own philosophy or feelings. Either the Bible teaches what I just suggested it teaches, along with 
the commentator I read, or it doesn't. And insofar as it does, we must receive it as the good word of God, the good and beautiful and true word. As always, only when we start from there can we rightly work out to the practical and ethical and emotional implications. With that then, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this idea? As you can tell, this is a doctrinal issue. For that reason, we need to be careful that we make sure we're interpreting it properly. But at the same time, it is also a very practical issue. So I want to give you four things. So it will help us make sense of this, the tone in which John means us to read it, and the way it's meant to affect our lives. The first is this. We need to learn that God is not to be trifled with. Our God is not a God to be trifled with. It is not a coincidence. So we quoted, John quoted two passages from Isaiah, and the second was from chapter 6. It is not a coincidence that the second passage cited by John to explain the unbelief of the crowd comes at the end of Isaiah 6. Do you know what the beginning of Isaiah 6 contains? I think many of you probably do. It is one of the most significant descriptions of the holiness of God found anywhere in the Bible. It is the famous passage in which Isaiah encountered God who is not to be trifled with. Listen to these words, Grace. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. This is Isaiah. Isaiah saw the throne, or the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, you know this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the foundations of the thresh, and the th- foundations of the thresholds shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, that is Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Grace, this is not a God to be trifled with. And Isaiah experienced that firsthand. He is a holy God, holy beyond measure. He is a God of righteousness and justice and wrath. He is a consuming fire, and that is not good news to a sinful people. It is right for us to join in Isaiah and crying out, Woe is me! To become a Christian in some way at some level, you have to have cried out, Woe is me! You have to have come to understand the holiness of God in your sin against him. For I am lost. For I am a person, a man, a woman of unclean lips. And not only that, but I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's the heart of John twelve forty one. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory, his glory, and spoke of him. Might be referring to Jesus, but certainly the God of smoke and fire. Isaiah knew that the holiness of God meant that he deserved nothing but condemnation and ruin. And that leads to the second answer to this question of what we are to do with these things. First, as we contemplated what God's word said about God's sovereignty over our unbelief, we ought to respond by recognizing that he is not a God to be trifled with. Second, we ought to respond by recognizing that any hardening of our hearts is the just judgment and right punishment of God for our sin. After encountering God in the way that he did, Isaiah volunteered to be God's mouthpiece to the Israelites, having experienced the holiness of God and been made to tremble and having 
himself cleansed by coals of fire, that is, the grace of God. He volunteered to be God's mouthpiece to tell his fellow Israelites about this God and his encounter with it. And God agreed. And the message God gave Isaiah to deliver are the very words John quoted in our passage for this morning. Isaiah 6, 9. Go and say to this people, God said. After this encounter, after the cleansing, after the woe is me, Isaiah said, I'll go. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing. I keep My word is going to continue to be before you. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, Isaiah, how long, O Lord? That's a terrible word. We'll be crushed if that remains. How long, O Lord? And he said, the Lord said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. Well, as is the case in our passage, Grace, the unbelief of those in Jesus' presence was the judgment of God. It was in Isaiah, and it is here, which is why it was ringing in John's ears. God's people had rebelled stubbornly and persistently in spite of God's countless blessings and numerous warnings. In this way, it is very similar to the various times that God handed the Israelites over to the pagan nations to be conquered and even exiled from them, from their land. It is These things are harsh punishments, to be sure, and yet they still pale in comparison to the everlasting condemnation that we deserve. The modern notion is that it is not fair for God to act in this way. But the reality is that it is not fair for God to pardon anyone. You don't want what's fair. If you know your sin in light of the holiness of God, you don't want what's fair. We don't need fairness. We need grace. As if to make that exact point, John continued into verse 42. Nevertheless, even the authorities believed in Many even of the authorities believed in Jesus. In spite of all these things, some believed in some capacity. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory. Whatever the nature of their belief was, it loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Even the ones who were allowed some measure of sight, some measure of hearing, some measure of understanding, of the true nature of Jesus, were more afraid of men than the God of Isaiah 6. God is right to judge the world with a conquered nation, the hardening of hearts, the eternal torment, for we are all men and women of unclean lips, lost in our sin and rebellion. What's more, and this is key, Grace, hardening hearts is judgment for sin. God actively doing that is simply another way of describing what's always true. This passage will make most sense, and the transition from these hard things to the good things I'm about to turn to will only make sense if you understand this. I want to say that again, and I'm going to give a a verse and a brief explanation. The hardening of the hearts described in Isaiah and repeated by John in this passage as judgment for sin is simply another way of describing what is always true. What do I mean by that? Don't miss the fact that in Romans 8, 7, the Apostle Paul teaches that left to our own desires, 
That is to say, apart from some active grace of God. We don't need to be hardened to not believe. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That is, all those born in Adam, which is all of us. That mind is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It may sound harsh that God actively hardened the hearts of some, but the simple fact remains that whether he does or not, we will never believe in God on our own apart from the regenerating grace of God. And so I ask you, is this how you view unbelief? As the universal result of sin and at times the just punishment for our sin? Do you understand judgment as just? Judgment and condemnation even hardening as just? And any measure of forgiveness or sight or understanding as grace? Do you recognize that our sinful natures are such that apart from God's intervening grace, no one would believe in Jesus? That's what it means to be an Adam. Can you see that our natural state is such that all of us love the glory of man more than the glory of God? Have you fallen in any ways or at any times into the lie of believing you deserve anything other than the consuming fire of God? God is right to judge the world, and a right response to this passage is to live every minute of every day in light of that. All right, let's turn a little bit to the good news. We ought to respond by acknowledging that God is not to be trifled with, that his judgment in whatever form it might take is just, and that those things, and also that those things need not be the end of the story. Although unbelief is an indication of God's judgment on us for our sin, as long as we have breath, Grace Church, we also have the call of the Lord to believe on him and be saved. To be crystal clear, nothing that John has said, nothing that I, that, nothing that I have said about what John has said is to say that present unbelief necessitates future unbelief. None of it is to say that we should not preach the gospel to everyone, for we do not know, and this is key, and it's always this, whenever anyone is saved, we do not know when God's sovereign grace might overtake his righteous justice and judgment on our lives. We say that again and then give you an example in John, several. We do not know when God's sovereign grace might overtake his righteous justice and judgment in our lives. God's hardening or refusal to draw as reasons for unbelief is a significant theme in John's gospel. But equally as significant, though, is the universal call to believe right now and for all who do, you will be saved. All, everyone, anyone, and whoever are among the most common and important words in John's gospel. I gave you a list earlier of verses concerning God's sovereignty over our unbelief. Consider now this second list. Right from chapter 1, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 3.36, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. 524, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him 
who sent me has eternal life. 637, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. 640, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 647, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 651, I am the bread of life coming down from from heaven. If anyone, anyone eats this bread, this is our message to the world. If anyone eats this bread, eat, eat world, eat this, eats this bread, he will live forever. 737. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, are you thirsty? Come, let him, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 812. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. 851, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. 109, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and find pasture. John 11:25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Lastly, John 12:32, and I... When I am lifted up from the earth, we saw this last week, will draw all people to myself. Grace Church, we must not pit the clear teachings of God's word against each other, as many are prone to do. The third proper response to this passage, to the things that John taught, is to believe both that God is sovereign over our unbelief and that it is entirely compatible with the universal gospel call to the world, the need to, to proclaim it and believe it. We are not lying when we call the world to believe in Jesus' name and promise that if they believe, they will be saved. Finally then, and in light of the last point, it is right to respond to this passage above all in hope. Consider again the Apostle Paul on this. Romans 9.14 What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? It's a good question, right? I mean, it... It sounds on the surface like it's not fair, this passage in John's gospel. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part regard to his sovereignty over our belief and unbelief? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All right. When we read that passage and passages like that, when we read these passages in John about the, the, how it can sound hard and it can get more of our attention, the hard stuff, the difficult stuff, this, this wondering if there's injustice on God. But the key for us to see is that God has mercy. Although we all deserve sin, because of our sin, we all deserve death. God has mercy. He has compassion. That is the good news. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. You shouldn't be. You couldn't be. You wouldn't be. But because our God is a God of mercy and compassion, you can be. Amen. Even if we do not yet believe, or even if we love someone dearly who does not yet believe, and even as it is, even as that is rightly understood as the inevitable cause of sin and active judgment of God, God has mercy and compassion. Although we deserve nothing but his wrath, he is often pleased to give us grace. John wrote the whole gospel to tell us of the judgment of God, which t- 
takes the form of unbelief. But he also wrote to tell us of the fact that God loved the world in such a way that he sent his son to bring eternal life to the world. There is hope for all. There is hope for us to believe and there is hope for us to proclaim this good news. Far from a message of despair then or a message we ought to walk away with our heads down then, this is a message of urgency, Grace, of urgency to proclaim to the world the only message that can rescue us from our unbelief. Consider again then the words of our Lord. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Let us go and tell this good news to the world.